Evening everyone, how are we doing? Well, we've got our lollies, we've got our tea. Good to go, brilliant. Uh, tonight we are continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you were here last week, you know Rachel was talking on 1 Corinthians 13. And just to keep everyone on our toes, tonight we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 12. Curveball, I know, but stay with me. So we're in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 to 27 tonight. Uh, we're going to have some Bible monitors. How about... Uh, Tom and Ali, would you like to be the Bible monitors? If you guys need a Bible, stick your hand up in the air and these guys will deliver it to you. If you don't have a Bible at home, um, then please take this as a free gift. Um, please don't just use it as a doorstop, please read it. Um, and also the words are going to come, come up on the screen, so if you don't get a Bible, don't worry, it'll be okay. So 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, and just while you're looking that up, we're going to have a really quick recap of where we are uh, in the story of 1 Corinthians. So this is a church in Corinth that has a lot of difficulty, a lot of issues. There's a real disunity between different groups that are formed in the church. Some think, you know, that they've arrived, that they're really spiritually mature. They think they're like super Christians. Um, and there's a real spiritual arrogance. A lot of other issues going on as well. So Paul is writing to them in this context um, and just with all these different issues, trying to kind of bring them back on track, trying to point them to Jesus and sort these issues out. So we're going to read from chapter 12, verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. And so the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. Well, our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Amen. Brilliant. So Paul here, again, is, is addressing this issue of disunity in the church, in the people in Corinth. And he's calling, back, calling them back to this place of harmony and unity by using this picture that they are all part of the same body. So we're going to be looking at this body that Paul is talking about today, and we're going to ask ourselves, what kind of body is this? What is it made up of? What does it look like? 
What is the message here for the Corinthians back then and for us as a church today? What kind of body is this? And firstly, this is a body of Christ. Uh, I loved playing football growing up. Really, really big fan. I, I loved playing it, but always hated watching it. A little bit weird. I can never kind of force myself to sit down for 90 minutes and just watch a game. I just get really, really bored. So if you speak to me at the end of the service about who's been playing over the weekend and what the scores were, my eyes will probably just glaze over and you won't really get much of a response because I've got no idea about any of that. But I've always loved playing it. And I loved especially just in school when you'd have those kind of matches. I don't know if you ever did this, where like maybe five people would start playing and then soon it would become 10, then 15, and then 20. And then all of a sudden you've got 60 people on the pitch, 30 aside, it's absolute carnage. Everyone's running about, no one knows what's going on. At any one time there's five people on the ball. If you ever kick the ball, it kind of pinballs off like six different people. And the way that people tend to score was they'd kind of stay, you know, goal hangers. I don't know if you've heard of goal hangers. They'd stay by the goal line. And basically the ball would just kind of run come to them, just go to a random body part, maybe smash off their face, and then bobble past the line and be like, yep, that, that one was me, skill, did it, did it. And that was how school football worked. And I loved it. It was really good fun. But it wasn't until I joined an actual football team that I learned a bit more about how football worked. I tried out for a couple of teams with no success, sadly. But finally, Marauders FC the C team, I got in. Very exciting. And we were, in a word, awful. And I mean really, really bad. Literally 20-0, losing 20-0 was a good result for us. Like, it was atrocious. Really, really awful. But even though we were rubbish, even though we were the bottom of the league consistently, I loved it. I loved being part of this team. I loved kind of you know, the feeling that I had a position on the pitch. You know, I had a role to play. Um, where in the kit there was the sense of kind of pride and belonging to this team. And I loved it. It was completely different to the kind of scrappy games we'd have at school. But being part of the body that Paul is talking about is a little bit like joining that football team. You see, Paul's image of a body illustrates fantastically what unity is all about. It's about all different people kind of coming together to form one collective, one body. In verse 12, it says, as many parts form one body, so it is with, and we might expect Paul to say here, so it is with the church. You know, that seems, to, that seems fair enough. You know, the church is made up of a lot of different people coming together like a body. But Paul says something a lot more profound. He says, as many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Now, that might not seem like a big deal, but Paul is communicating something incredible to the Corinthians here. He's not just saying, you, church, are like a body. He's actually saying to them, you, church, are Jesus' body on earth. You see the difference there? It's incredible. Each one of you is a part of it. It says in verse 27, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Wow. It's amazing. So we, as a church, are not just a body. We're not a huge chaotic game of school football where no one really knows what's going on. You know, we're not a gathering of people just kind of floating through our lives, everyone doing their own thing, forming a vague huddle together on a Sunday. We're not just a body. We are Jesus's body. In the same way that 11 players on a field wear the kit of the same team and are all united under 
a name that is bigger than themselves. We, as a group, represent Jesus and are united together under his name, under the name that is bigger than ourselves. Each one of us, when we've given our lives to him, are brought in, are made part of this body and called to be on the team. So Jesus has chosen to make us his body here on earth. And this is true uh, on a global level. We can look at the church across the whole world and say, yep, that is Jesus' body. But it's also true here, the evening service at Gilt Park. This is a, a part, this is an expression of Jesus' body in this area. And if we take those words seriously, you know, if we let those sink in, the implications are huge. You know, I sometimes wonder how amazing would it be if Jesus physically came to earth, came to Aberdeen and started walking amongst our streets. What would that look like? You know, where would he go? Who would be the people that he would speak to? What is it he would go up and say to them? And what would the stories be like off the back of that? It would be amazing, wouldn't it? You know, people would be healed. People would be set free. People would be like, I don't know, just experience God's love and his kindness and know that he's real for the first time. It would be amazing. You know, people would say stuff like, what? I've met Jesus. He's real. He loves me. You know, I, met, I saw Jesus yesterday. He totally broke into my life. He's turned everything upside down. And we might long for that to happen. We might long for God to do that and appear physically and just walk amongst us. We might long for Jesus to be in our streets. But actually, it's absolutely Jesus' heart to do that. It's absolutely his heart to walk amongst our streets and to meet people. But rather than appearing physically, God has chosen that together we are to be Jesus' body on earth and we are to be those people who do that. One commentator wrote this, he said, in order to accomplish his work on earth 2,000 years ago, Jesus had a body made of flesh and blood. But in order to complete his work today, Jesus has a body that consists of living human beings. We are Jesus' body. We are his body in our local area here. We're his body in our individual streets, our workplaces, our schools, our gyms, coffee shops, supermarkets, restaurants, lecture theaters, halls of residence, bank queues. God's heart and God's design is that we would be the ones to bring Jesus to those places, that we would be his hands and his feet. You know, the Holy Spirit in us, because, because he is in us, we carry Jesus' authority and his power. That is open to us. That is available to us. And in the Bible, Jesus leaves us this template of how to live our lives. He shows us how to live, and he calls us to be like him, and actually invites us to do even greater things and see even greater things than he did. Wow. Amazing. And for some of us, that might really stir us. That might make us think, yes, I want some of that. But for others, that might feel like a real discouragement. That might feel like, how can I ever be like Jesus? How can I ever do that? How can I represent him in Aberdeen? How can I, you know, represent him to my, my friends and to my family and in my workplace or my school or uni or wherever it is? How can I be part of this body on earth? You know, look at me, look at my life. How does that work? But, you know, we can take encouragement from the verse that we read at the start that for those who have given their life to Jesus, we are all part of his body. It says we were all baptized in one spirit, whether Jew, Gentile, slave, or free. 
In other words, Paul is saying, this is for everyone. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're in the body. You're, you're in. You've made it. And when we come to faith, we are filled, we're drenched, we're submerged with the Holy Spirit, with a person of the Holy Spirit, whether that's something we feel physically or not. We're knitted into the body of Christ in that moment. So this is for everyone who's a Christian. There's no distinction. There's no kind of super Christian. This is for kind of first class and then second class Christians. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. All believers are part of this body and we're united by the same Holy Spirit who's working in our lives. And as we grow closer to God, as we spend time getting to know him more um, and letting more of him in, the Holy Spirit begins to work in us to make us more like Jesus. Nobody here is a perfect reflection of Jesus. Sorry to disappoint you if you thought that you were, but you're not. <laughs> no one here is a perfect reflection of Jesus, and no church in the world perfectly encapsulates what being the body of Jesus on earth looks like. But the Holy Spirit's desire is that bit by bit, over time, he would be bringing us more and more to look like Jesus, to act like Jesus, to be Jesus, to transform us into him and to reflect his love and his power into the darkest and most desperate corners of our community. We're to be Jesus. We're to be a light to this community. You know, we have, yeah, what does that look, for, what does that look like for us as individuals and as a site? That's the question. We have some fantastic ministries in our church here that, that do an incredible job of reaching out to the community. You know, lifestyle, mainly music, um, restore, lunch and chat, just to name a few. These are amazing ministries, and we pray that God continues to use them uh, to bless people in our community and for them to grow and expand and do more and more. But what does God long to do in and through our church? In Gilcomston Park out there, in Baker Street, in Skeen, Rosemount, Denburn, what does God want to do? What does he want his body to do in this place? What a huge challenge, but what an exciting call at the same time. We're to be Jesus in our community. And if tonight we're still left with the feeling of, I can't, you know, that's for certain people, a certain type of person, you know, and I'm, you know, or I'm not needed for that or any of those kind of thoughts. What we're going to find out next is that this is a body with many distinct parts. One of my favorite films uh, from the last few years is uh, Hugo. Has anyone seen Hugo? One person. <laughs> yes, cool. Well, go and watch it, it's great. I, I really love Hugo. It's, it's kind of set in the kind of early 20th century, um, and it's basically about a little boy whose dad was a clockmaker, uh, an inventor, um, and Hugo, like his dad, is, is just captivated by machines and by mechanics and how, how they all work and how they fit together. Um, and pretty soon, Hugo, like his dad, can build and can repair pretty much any kind of mechanism. One day, his father is killed, and in that moment, Hugo's world is turned upside down. He leaves home, and he finds himself working uh, in, a, in the local train station, living alone in the attics in the basement, and he just kind of scurries around fixing all the clocks secretly, and that's his life. 
But eventually he befriends a young girl about the same age as him. And one day they start to talk about their purpose and why they're there on the earth and, and what it's all about. What's the meaning behind it? And so Hugo takes uh, this girl, his friend, he, he takes her to the top of the train station that has a view of the whole city in front of them. It's nighttime, there's lights everywhere, and it looks beautiful. And he says this to her. He says, after my father died, I would come up here a lot. I'd imagine the whole world was one big machine. Machines never come with any extra parts. They always come with the exact amount they need. So I figured if the entire world was one big machine, I couldn't be an extra part. I had to be here for some reason. And that means you have to be here for some reason too. Machines don't have spare parts. And that's true. It's true of like, maybe not just machines, but just things you put together. I don't know if anyone has ever tried to put an Ikea wardrobe together. And then at the end, there's a mystery screw left over and you're thinking, I'm pretty sure this is important. I'm pretty sure it should be in there. And the next question is kind of, when is this whole thing going to collapse in on me? Like every part is necessary. Every part is needed. Or I don't know, you maybe imagine you're going to uh, buy a new car, for example, and you go to the garage and the guy who's been building it uh, says, well, your car's ready, um, it's all ready to go. Just, just one little thing, when we're putting the engine together, we found that there was this one piece, uh, and we're not really sure where it was supposed to go or what it does exactly, but I mean, you know, it looks pretty small. I'm sure it's not that important, so you should be fine. Uh, how will you be paying? Not at all, actually. No, no way I'm getting in that death trap that you've made for me. Because machines don't have spare parts, do they? Every part, even the smallest parts, are crucial. They're absolutely necessary. And Paul's picture of the body of Christ tells us the same thing. He is adamant that every part of the body of Christ is necessary. There are no spares. Verse 27, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Each one of you. We're all a part of it. We all get to be involved. We all get to play. And the strength of this body is found in the variety of the people that make it up. I mean, even just looking here tonight at this, this congregation, there is such variety and difference between us all. And that is a good thing. God has made it that way. It's his design. Like it says in verse 18, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, if they were all the same, where would the body be? So Paul is trying to highlight kind of the variety in the body using, you know, this imagery of like, you know, hands and feet and eyes and ears. And he's saying we're all distinct, we're all different, but each one of us is absolutely necessary. Each one of us has a part to play. And I'm so glad that he does that because I don't know about you, but my initial reaction to, you know, being told that, I'm a part of this incredible body of Jesus on earth is to look inward at myself and to doubt it and to think, really, me? And maybe to look at other people around the church and to look at, you know, their gifting and what God's doing in them and kind of say, you know, I can see it in them. I can see that they would be part of the body. You know, God, you know, it's, it must be easy for them. God has given them all the gifting. You know, they're the right kind of person, but not me, not me. Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. Paul wrote that. That's what we can think, isn't it? We can think, because I'm not like that, I'm not part of this. But the opposite is true. The Bible is clear. Not only is each part different and necessary, 
God has given each part the ability to do what he's made it for. And for the parts that seem like, you know, that seem lower or maybe seem like a less glamorous role, it says that God gives them special honor. And to the other parts, he doesn't. It's like everyone is on like a level playing field. We're all equal and we're all equally vital. So if anyone tonight feels overlooked or unwanted or unnecessary, Jesus is saying really specifically to you tonight, no, no, I have made you. I have made you as you are and you are a vital part of this body. And that is on his heart tonight, I think, for some of us. And we need to hear that. The other danger Paul highlights is that something that was a real problem for the Corinthians and that these people who thought they were spiritually superior, who thought they were super Christians, looking down on the others, you know, the eye saying to the hand, I don't need you, and the head saying to the feet, I don't need you. But it says, on the contrary, those parts of the body that seem weaker are actually indispensable. You see the way God has arranged the body in his infinite wisdom. He's made it so that no part can legitimately say, I don't, you know, I don't need you, other part, and kind of go off and be super Christian all by themselves. That's not how it works. And the flip side of that is no part can say, I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to give. All of us as the body are completely dependent, firstly, on God, and secondly, on each other. To go back to the football analogy, it's like we've been picked for the team Um, I don't know if anyone in school was ever the kid that never got picked for the team, but really specifically tonight, God is saying, you've been picked for the team. All of us who are followers of God have been picked for the team. We've been picked for the team. We've got the kit. We've got the boots. We've each got different strengths and weaknesses, and God has allocated us a position on the field. We have a role to play. But if a player thinks that they're amazing, they think that they're, they're it, and they never pass the ball and they keep it to themselves, that hurts the team. Or if a player thinks that they're not good enough and they kind of hide and kind of like, you know, move away from the ball or even walk off the pitch, you're pretty much a player down, aren't you? And that hurts the team as well. We're all called to play, but with a healthy attitude, knowing we're only part of the team, but knowing that what we're bringing along with everyone else is really important because God has made it that way. That's the way he's arranged his team. So let's ask him this evening. God, am I in the position that you want me to be? Am I in the right spot? Where should I be for the good of the body? Have I been in the same spot for too long? Is it time for someone else to come along and take my place and I go off and do something else? Is it time for me to lay something down? Is it time for me to pick something up? Where are you calling me to, God? Where are you calling me to? Or maybe for some of us it feels like, God, I don't even know if I've stepped onto the pitch. I feel like I'm still on the bench or I'm in the changing rooms. Help me, God. Wherever you're at tonight, wherever you you feel you're at, God wants to come alongside you and speak to you. We all have a part to play. And we're not just talking exclusively about serving in church ministries, although that is a big part of this. That is a way that we can directly kind of feed into the body of Jesus and the life of our church. But generally, we're asking ourselves, if I'm a part of this body of Jesus in this place, in this area, what part am I? What has God given me the heart for? 
What does taking up that part look like when it's played out in my life? We might not know what God has given us a heart for, for some of us. It might take us a bit longer to figure out. Some people might just know and just be like, I think God has called me to this and that's great. For some of us, it might not work like that. But even if you're in that place, just get stuck in. Just start playing. You're on the pitch. Just, just go for it and see what happens. What an encouragement. We all have a place in this body. We all get picked for the team. and We all get to play. So let's not let the lie that we're not good enough, that we're not spiritually enough, make us miss out on what God has for us. So this is a body of Christ with many distinct parts. And finally, these are parts that are deeply connected. So um, it's confession time, guys. As a small child, I had a quite a major sweet tooth, shall we say. So all day, I'm just kind of wiring into Kit Kats and cakes and anything I can get my hands on. And it's great. It's great for a while. But the problem with that is, what do you do at nighttime? What do you do when you're lying in bed and you're just sitting there craving sweets? So I'm lying there one night thinking, what can I do about this? And then the next day, I make a plan. And what I start to do is to take a cake, take a Kit Kat, take things bit by bit, and just start putting them under my pillow, creating a little sugar stockpile for later. So that evening, I'm all set, I get ready for bed, I get teeth brushed, all that stuff, say goodnight to everyone, wait till the house is quiet, and then lean over into my pillow and start wiring away all these sweets, and it's brilliant. Uh, unfortunately, this resulted in a pretty predictable trip to the dentist where I got lots of fillings. And since those days, I have been not a fan of the dentist at all. Don't like it. I, I do the kind of guy thing where, like, if I feel there's something wrong with my teeth, I'll just kind of suppress that and be like, no, it's, it's fine. It'll sort itself out. You know, they say time is a healer. Uh, apparently, that doesn't work with teeth. It just seems to get worse over time. Uh, but one day, I felt the twinge, that kind of pain in my tooth, and I just kind of ignored it. But pretty soon, it was getting more and more painful. I don't know if you've ever had bad toothache before, but it doesn't seem to just affect your tooth, does it? It's like your whole mouth is like oh, on fire, and then it's your jaw, and your eyes are sore, like behind your eyes, and a headache. And I was like, I've got to get this seen to. Had to admit defeat and go to the dentist. And when a part of our body hurts, we feel it. Even the small parts. You know, when you stub your toe, or you hit your thumb with a hammer, um, or if you stand barefoot on an upturned plug. Can you feel that? Just, oh, horrible, horrible. We, we know about it, don't we? In those moments, we're like, well, oh, I feel it. Horrible, absolutely horrible. But it's important that our bodies are able to do that, to feel pain so that we know something isn't right. A bit like my tooth telling me it was time to go to the dentist and get it sorted out. This is actually God's desire for his church, for his body to work in the same way. For us as individuals to be open enough with each other to share a deep, connection with each other, where we're aware of each other's joy, but also the pain that we might be going through and be able to feel those things together. Paul is writing to this church in Corinth where this, this self-seeking kind of nature, you know, people are looking out for themselves, um, and it's a huge issue, and it's kind of to counter, counteract that, he's reminding them of God's heart for unity and God's heart that they would have equal concern for each other. It says in verse 25, there should be no division in the body. Its parts should have equal concern. 
If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And they have to have equal concern for each other, especially for the parts of the body that they see as beneath themselves. They have to learn humility and put other people first, but also to celebrate the success of others, even if that means they're ahead of them and kind of they're living in their shadow. They have to put others first. And as a church, I know that, that we desperately try to be there for each other. Inevitably, sometimes we're going to get that wrong. But we're to strive more and more to be a place where we put others' concerns ahead of our own. Suffer together, but also rejoice together. Celebrate the good. You know, we love it when there's a wedding in this church, don't we? And we love, you know, if, if we're, you know, if the, the couple says, you know, can you help us with this? We're like, yeah, of course, of course we can. Or, you know, if there's newborn babies and like, you know, people make meals and bring them into a house, like we love to celebrate in the good times together. But we also want to be there, you know, when there's job loss, when there's illness, when there's bereavement. We want to gather around each other and kind of feel through those moments together and not shy away from them. You know, I know for myself that small group has been so key in that over the last few years. I remember a situation I was struggling with a few years ago where my small group leader and people from church were just so amazing and getting around me during a really tough period and just carrying me through that. I think the easiest place for us to live out this verse about, you know, having equal concern and suffering and rejoicing together is in small group, you know, where we're regularly committing to doing life with other people and journeying with them through the good stuff and the bad stuff and are able to pray weekly into each other's situations. That's the way it should be. We as part of the body need to be willing to walk with people through their pain and through their celebrations. I went to a friend's wedding um, some time ago uh, with a group of people from this church. Uh, we all knew the guy. And uh, it was a really good wedding. Uh, we got to the, the, the point of the day where it was the meal, the best point, I would say. I was very excited. Um, and so we, we were kind of looking at the, the uh, table plan to see where we were going to be seated, us, me and all these guys from church. And we're a bit confused because our table seems to be right, you know, right at the front, right near the top table which is bizarre because, you know, this is kind of where the family go. We're just some mates from uni and church, and this is a little bit, you know. So we kind of sit down, and sure enough, our family are kind of further back than us, and we're right near the top table, and it feels like a very uncomfortable thing. We're like, someone made a mistake. Are we going to get asked to, you know, be moved in a minute? But, you know, no one says anything to us. We just kind of sit down uncomfortably and get on with the meal. And it comes to the speeches, and the groom uh, is doing his speech, as you'd expect, saying thank you, cracking jokes, all that kind of stuff. But then he starts to talk about um, his time at uni and how he found that one of the toughest and darkest periods of his life. He had battled with depression in that, at that time, as had his fiance. And he's just talking about this. But then all of a sudden, to everyone's amazement in the room, he asked the table at the front to stand up. And he goes on to say how everyone at that table, along with his family, had walked with him through those dark times and stayed with him. And because of that, he was able to stand there on his wedding day, having come out the other side. And he then led the room in a round of applause for this table and got up and went around to each individual person and thanked them and hugged them one of the most emotional moments I've ever been a part of. It was incredible. Second only to my own wedding, I have to say. But 
an absolutely amazing, I'm glad I said that, absolutely amazing moment. And you know, just everyone was in floods of tears. It was incredible. But the thing is, we will never know the impact we can have just by simply doing what this verse is saying and just walking alongside each other in the good times and the bad. None of us sitting at that table had any idea of what just simply being there for the groom had meant to him. God is calling us as a church to do the same time and time again, to suffer and to rejoice together. For some of us, pain is a very private and inward thing. Um, And of course, I don't think this verse means that we have to start broadcasting our deepest pain to every single person we see on a Sunday morning. I don't think that's what God is asking us to do. But even if we find opening up to others difficult, it is much harder to suffer alone. God wants his body to be one with a deep connection where there are real relationships that are raw. I remember a line from the Road to Maturity course that we ran last year that says this, the family that feels together, heals together. And I think as part of the body, we all need people in our lives who know who we know completely and we can be completely real with. People who will celebrate the good in our lives, but also be willing to cry with us in the middle of pain. We're all part of the body. So let's make sure we make every effort to be deeply connected to the other people in it. So this is Paul's picture of God's church, where Jesus' body on earth, made up of many distinct parts that share a deep connection. Why don't we stand?